This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. Today in the Alcazine Brief, I'm talking with Diane zipersky Quali. Together with her late husband, John Quali, Diane is the co-founder and director of the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, or Beacon. The organization was founded in 2005 and is the only national advocacy organization devoted to advancing bladder cancer research and supporting anyone impacted by the disease. The organization is on the front lines advocating for greater public awareness and increased funding for research to identify effective treatments and eventually a cure for bladder cancer. Each year, Beacon provides thousands of patients, caregivers, and the medical community with educational resources. The organization supports patients with services they need to navigate their bladder cancer journey. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Ongesin Brief. The Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network works collaboratively with medical research professionals who are dedicated to prevent and diagnose and treat bladder cancer. The organization empowers the patient community by allowing them to share experiences with each other and to participate in building awareness of a need for a cure. The Oncozine Brief is developed in collaboration with our online journal, Oncozine, at www.oncozine.com, where you can find additional information and the latest news about cancer, cancer diagnosis, and treatment and cancer prevention. Let's listen to our interview with Hayen Zipersky-Kwali. Diane, welcome to the Oncosine Brief. With a very extensive background in uh, the cancer community, tell me a little bit more about yourself and about the various roles. Thank you, Peter, first of all, for the opportunity to talk with you today. I actually am trained as an attorney, as a lawyer, something that I always wanted to do from the time I was really quite young. And I was in a practicing lawyer for about 20 years, first in private practice, and then with NBC, the national broadcasting company. I worked primarily in the area of communications, representing uh, radio and television stations, and really did enjoy my work. I've always loved the challenge of addressing problems and helping people solve those problems. But my late husband, John Qualley, was diagnosed with bladder cancer in 2000. And for us, as well as for most people who get a cancer diagnosis, that sort of changes your whole view of life and of priorities. And in 2002, I left the practice of law and became actively engaged in the cancer community. Yeah, you mentioned your your husband. Tell me a little bit more about him in terms of what uh, together you, you did to develop Beacon and what you found when there was no Beacon yet. So my late husband, John Qualley, who was just a wonderful, strong, courageous man and probably the smartest person I've ever known. He also was an attorney in the communications field. He was diagnosed with bladder cancer in 2000. And at the time, we had never even heard of bladder cancer, and we knew of no one else who had the disease. And our bladder cancer journey lasted eight years. But during that time, and especially in the first few years, we were really distressed to find out that there was 
so little information available about bladder cancer. If you recall, in the early 2000s, I mean, the Internet was started, had started, but there wasn't a whole lot there, and there was no information about bladder cancer. There was no place for us to go to talk with other people who had the disease, and we were both so concerned about the fact that John's treatment options were so limited, and then were really distressed to find out that so little research funding had been appropriated to bladder cancer, and that at that time, there had been no research advances in the disease. And certainly, this was at a time when, even in the early 2000s, that there was a lot of advancements being made in breast cancer and colon cancer and prostate cancer, and yet nobody was talking about bladder cancer. Yeah, and, and, and when you look at bladder cancer, it is not a small disease. It is, there are actually a lot of people that are affected by the disease. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that so shocked both John and myself when he when he was diagnosed with the disease since we had never heard of it. And then we found out that it's one of the most common cancers in the United States. It's the fourth most common cancer among men, and yet nobody was talking about it. Until we started our organization in 2005, there was no voice for bladder cancer patients. We really knew, looking at just the cancer community as a whole, that once patients started talking about their disease, things started to change. I mean, it certainly started first with breast cancer and then with with Betty Ford all those years ago Mm -hmm. talking about her experience and in prostate cancer with Michael Milken and, and the money that he used to raise awareness about prostate cancer and fund prostate cancer research. So we knew all of this and we knew that it was time to get a voice out there for the bladder cancer community and we decided that we were fortunate enough to be in a situation where we could take our expertise as attorneys, as well as our connection and our network and our family and our friends to try to change the landscape for bladder cancer and give the bladder cancer community a voice. Which is absolutely very much appreciated, uh, I think, not only by patients, but also by their family and, and, and friends. And I think even the physician community really appreciate the fact that patients understand a little bit more about their disease. Tell me a little bit about your organization, the fact that you you started sharing information. What were those early days in terms of what you were doing and and how has that grown to what you're doing right now? So our organization is Beacon, B-C-A-N, for the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network. And it really, from its very beginning, Peter, has been a community of patients and caregivers, survivors, along with the medical and research professionals who devote their time to bladder cancer and research and improving treatments. Because just as we felt, John and I felt, that the patients needed a voice, the doctors who we worked with, and and John was always treated at Johns Hopkins, the doctors who we worked with also felt a need to raise awareness of bladder cancer and really get more attention to the disease. It's really been that way, and from the beginning, our focus has been, as I said, raising awareness of the disease because the first time you hear about bladder cancer should not be when you are diagnosed. We also wanted to make sure that patients and their families had education and educational resources and the information they need to make informed decisions. We feel very strongly that A proactive patient, somebody who can be actively engaged in their treatment and in the decision-making, 
leads to better outcomes. Equally important, we wanted to make sure we could advance research into this disease and come up with new and improved treatments for everybody who's going through bladder cancer. We started at our kitchen table in Bethesda in 2005, and we are now, 14 years later, a national organization with people who are involved all around the country. We now have a professional staff and have a much larger budget so that we can reach everywhere. We host an annual scientific meeting. We call it our Bladder Cancer Think Tank which has grown over the last 14 years from about 50 to our meeting this August in Washington, D.C. is going to be nearly 300. And we focus a lot on um, supporting and advancing collaboration to make sure that all of the medical professionals who are dealing with bladder cancer are working together to improve outcomes and come up with better treatments. Yeah, so this is not just patients. It is also, you're talking to physicians, regulators, and, and, and people, everybody that is involved in the area of, of, of this particular disease, everybody is talking with you or you're talking with everybody. Absolutely right. And I think that's one reason why Beacon has been able to be so successful and why we have seen in the last 14 years more attention being paid to bladder cancer. And it's really very exciting because we have this core group, uh, well, actually the core is large, a huge group of supporters all across the spectrum who want to see improvement. What's been really exciting to see is the young physicians and clinicians and researchers who are engaged in bladder cancer and across the spectrum looking at all types of issues and not just improving treatment, but improving the quality of life of patients who are living with the disease, addressing issues like disparities and access to treatment. So we, we focus on all of those things, and all of our educational resources are informed by the experts who take part in the creation of them as well. Now, Beacon is, is what we would call a patient advocacy organization, if you compare yourself to other patient advocacy organizations, I mean, what are the key things that virtually any patient advocacy organization is doing, including Beacon? What's key to that, Peter, is you're having, it's a patient-centered organization focused on how to improve the lives of the patients, but from what the patients need, not what the scientific community thinks needs to be done, but really focusing first on what are the priorities of the people who are impacted by this disease. And that's what I think it's all about patient empowerment. And that's what Beacon does along with the other patient advocacy organizations. Let's take a break. After the break, we're back with Diane Zaporsky-Kwale. Diane is the co-founder and director of the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, called Beacon, a patient advocacy organization she established with her late husband, John Qualley. Clinical trials allow researchers to introduce new hope by providing participants access to cutting-edge and potentially life-saving treatments. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more. Together, we can stand up for all of us. This is the Oncazine Brief with Peter Hoffman 
and Sonia Portillo. And welcome back. I'm Peter Hoffeland, and this is the Ongesim Brief. If you're just joining us, in today's episode of the Ongesim Brief, I'm talking about Diane sapersky Quale, the co-founder and director of the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, Beacon. I'm Peter Hoffland, and this is the Ongesim Brief. Let's um, take a step back when we are talking about, um, about bladder cancer. According to uh, the data from the American Cancer Society, um, every year there are about 80,000 people that hear the message that they've been diagnosed with bladder cancer. Unfortunately, an estimated 18,000 people will also die from the disease, which makes it, as you mentioned in, in, in the previous segments, bladder cancer one of the most common cancers um, in the United States, which is interesting. I noticed in the research that it is a disease that is more frequent in men than in women. Tell me a little bit about the cancer. What is bladder cancer? Bladder cancer in its simplest form, Peter, is when cells in your bladder, in the lining and in the layers of your bladder, grow out of control. There are several forms of bladder cancer. Just to keep it simple, you have different layers of your bladder. If you think of your bladder kind of like a balloon, it's shaped like a balloon, and there's several layers. The first layer, layer is we call the urothelium or the epithelium. And then there's a lamina propria, the third layer, and then you get to the muscle. And bladder cancer, depending on how the tumor grows in your bladder, it's either non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's just in that first couple layers of your bladder, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, which is the most common type, probably 60 to 70% of New bladder cancers that are diagnosed fall within that non-muscle invasive, and then the rest are called muscle invasive because it's exactly what it sounds like. The cancer cells grow deeper into those layers of your bladder. They get into the muscle, and then they also, once they are in the muscle, has the opportunity to then get into your system, get into your lymph nodes, and then spread and become metastatic. Non-muscle invasive bladder cancer has its own set of treatments and muscle invasive bladder cancer has its set of, of treatments and challenges as well. When you talk about this particular form of cancer, it's always good to be as early as possible to visit a doctor or to be diagnosed as early as possible. Which brings me to probably a very important question that people may ask is, what are some of the signs and symptoms maybe in early development of a bladder cancer that people need to be aware of? The most common sign of bladder cancer is blood in your urine. And it can either be a small amount or a large amount. But blood in your urine can be the sign of many diseases. It's not just bladder cancer, but we what we like to advise people is blood in your urine is never normal. So you should always go see your doctor if there's blood in your urine. That's the most common symptom. Other things, there can be frequency of urination or perhaps pain when you urinate. Again, those symptoms can be caused by a number of different conditions, but they should always be checked out. So basically, the the good thing is to to keep in mind that if something doesn't seem completely right, don't ignore it, just go to the doctor. It's not necessarily a diagnosis of of bladder cancer, but you want to rule this out from the get-go. 
Absolutely. And, and one of the things, though, that's very important, too, and I think it's very important for women to know, as you mentioned, it's much more, bladder cancer is much more common in men than in women, but women get diagnosed at a later stage and have a worse prognosis than men. We don't really yet understand the difference in biology, why that might be, but we know that oftentimes women don't pay attention. There are other reasons for women to see blood. And oftentimes women, when they do see blood, go to their gynecologist and oftentimes have been misdiagnosed with a urinary tract infection. And they'll get antibiotics and then the bleeding goes away. If it's bladder cancer, the bleeding has gone away not because of the antibiotics, but because it can be, this blood in your urine can be intermittent. So I think the key is for for women especially to be alert and aware if you have frequent you if you have frequently have blood in your urine and are getting frequently diagnosed with a UTI you should ask your doctor to do a test to make sure to rule out bladder cancer. I think that is a very good advice because often signs may be nebulous uh, but uh, you want to know what's going on. Now you mentioned uh, a gender difference between uh, yeah. the, in, in bladder cancer, the diagnosis. Are there also other differences, for example, racial differences in people are more, more, are more prone to, to get bladder cancer uh, than other uh, groups of people? Yes, it's, it's more common in Caucasians than it is in Blacks or, or Latinos. It is more common in Caucasians. But again, you know, one of our concerns and one issue we look at is the racial disparities Because while it might be more common in Caucasians, oftentimes African-Americans and other minorities have poor outcomes. And we think that a lot has to do with just the access to good care. When you receive a diagnosis, uh, whether you're depending on, it doesn't depend who you are, but if you receive a diagnosis of, of bladder cancer, what are the first things that, that you may want to do, may want to consider after receiving this? So one of the things that's, that's key to know is if you have the diagnosis of bladder cancer should be made by a urologist. So if you've seen your um, primary care physician and he or she has seen blood in the urine, um, they should send you to a urologist. That's who in the first instance is the, the first of the experts who deal with bladder cancer. And so you want to see a urologist and have access to a urologist who does, if you can, who does see a lot of bladder cancer. And then what they'll do is there are a number of tests that are available for them to determine exactly what kind, what type of bladder cancer you have. Because it's very important in terms of treatment to know what stage you have. And that goes back to what I was talking about, where in the layers of the bladder is your tumor How deeply has it penetrated, if it's penetrated at all, as well as whether or not it looks like an aggressive tumor, what we would call high-grade or a low-grade tumor, which is a more slowly moving tumor. So I would say to anybody who's initially diagnosed with bladder cancer, the first thing besides finding the right doctor is to go either to our website, which is www.bcan.org, or give us a call at... 888-901-2226 to get some information about bladder cancer. We feel very strongly for patients to have as much information as possible and we can help you prepare for your tests 
prepare for your meetings and exams with your doctors. We have lists of questions. We have people you can talk to who've been through exactly what you're going through as a newly diagnosed patient. Because I think what happens oftentimes, I know when a patient gets, hears the word cancer, be it bladder cancer or anything else, sometimes you don't hear anything beyond that. And Beacon is here to help you navigate those waters, get all your questions asked, and then most importantly, make sure that you get ex- access to the best possible treatment. Again, as a, as a patient advocate, when you would visit um, your doctor or when you're about to get a diagnosis or hopefully it's been ruled out um, in, 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 yeah. in a particular case, would you advise that you have somebody with you to maybe listen to what a doctor says? Is that important? Is that, is, is that key in, in how you receive the information and how the follow-up may be? Absolutely, Peter. We, we strongly recommend if you can have somebody there with you, another set of ears, because it is hard for anybody to take all of the information in at one time. And so, yes, for those people who bring a friend, a sibling, bring somebody from your family, anybody who you can, who can be there and take notes for you and also ask some of the questions, some of the follow-up questions that, that you might not be able to formulate at the time. Can you stress again a little bit what, what are good things for a doctor to know about the involvement of uh, the patient that may sit in front of them? Oh, I think it's very important for the doctor to understand the patient's needs. First of all, the patient's own physical well-being, because depending on what kind of treatments are most appropriate, some patients can handle those better than others. I also think it's very important for the doctor to understand what kind of support that the patient may have or may not have at home. So there are certain treatments for bladder cancer. For example, for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, the, the most likely treatment in many instances is an immunotherapy that we call BCG that needs to be instilled directly into the bladder. So this requires you to go into the doctor's office to do this. And typically the course of BCG treatment is once a week for six weeks. So the doctor needs to understand if the patient has the ability to go back and forth to the doctor's office on a regular basis to get this treatment. And that's certainly the case with any other kind of treatment. Because one of the really important things for patients to know who are diagnosed with bladder cancer is bladder cancer has a very high recurrence rate. It will most likely come back. And so what this means is it doesn't necessarily make it more serious, but it means that you need to have a good relationship with your doctor, somebody who you trust, so that you go back on a regular basis, whatever that timing might be, to get rechecked to see whether or not a new tumor has arisen and if it has to have it removed and whether or not any additional treatment is needed. So I think it's really important for the doctor to really see the patient as a whole person, uh, not just somebody there uh, to be treated for the disease. Let's take a short break here and then we continue our interview with Diane sapersky Quali. Diane is the co-founder and director of the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, Beacon, a patient advocacy organization she established with her late husband, John Quale.
Over the years, you've brought opioids into your home. They helped when you were in pain, and you held on to them just in case. But holding on to opioids puts your family at risk. Learn more at www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. Welcome back. I'm Peter Hoffland, and this is the Ongesim Brief. If you're just joining us, today in the Ongesim Brief, I'm talking about Diane Sapersky Kwali. Diane is the co founder and director of the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, Beacon, a patient advocacy organization she established with her late husband, John Kwali. Now, you were talking about different forms of treatments. Other than the treatment that you just referred to, what other kind of treatments can, can a patient may or may a patient expect? So this will all depend on, on the type of bladder cancer, what stage, again, as we go back to what we talked initially, where that tumor is and how deeply it may have penetrated into the bladder wall. But for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, the first sort of the first level, typically bladder cancer patients have to go for what we call a cystoscopy, which is a scope that's inserted to look into the patient's bladder. And this allows the doctor to see where the tumors are. So that'll be the initial step. Then if there, are, if there are tumors that need to be removed, then the patient will come back for what we call a resection of that bladder tumor. It's a T-U-R-B-T. And that's often done then in a hospital, in an operating room under mild anesthesia. And that same scope, the doctor will use the scope to go in to look at the tumor and also then to remove it. And that resection, oftentimes after that resection, that might be all that the patient needs is to have that tumor removed and then to go back and see the the doctor on a regular basis to make sure no additional tumors have arisen or if they have developed, to have those removed. But depending on what the doctor learns from the removal of that tumor, they will study the tissue to see again, how far the tumor might have penetrated the bladder wall. One thing that is offered is a type of chemotherapy that will go directly into your bladder, oftentimes right after it's been resected, or what we talked about earlier, this BCG that will be given on a six-week course, um, but that usually happens after your bladder has recovered from that initial resection. If you have muscle-invasive bladder cancer where the tumor has actually penetrated into the bladder wall, there is chemotherapy that you can have to help reduce the impact of that. But currently, the standard of care for most muscle-invasive bladder cancer is removal of your bladder and reconstruction of a new urinary system. So it's a pretty significant surgery. It's also a very successful surgery. But a lot of the research and a lot of the advances are looking at how we can have patients preserve their the bladders they are born with as opposed to getting new ones because of bladder cancer. So there have been a lot of developments in that area. There's been a lot of developments in this creation of a new bladder that makes it much easier to adapt to and to live your new normal after that surgery but we still have a long way to go. Uh, one of the developments, recent developments, has also been in what we call multimodality therapy, which for patients with 
um, muscle-invasive bladder cancer. They can go through a... They will have their tumors resected, as we talked about, and then go through a round of chemotherapy as well as have radiation. And it's that radiation chemotherapy that has proven in, in many cases to be successful and then allowed patients to keep their biological bladders. That's what you're working at uh, or what people are working at? Well, one of the things that Beacon feels we've been working very hard at, and certainly it's very personal to me because it's something that was very important to my late husband, is really to find better treatments for bladder cancer so people do not have to have their bladders removed. Because that comes with a lot of, of consequences. Yes, and we Beacon has many resources to help people who are going to have that surgery. And we have patients who've been through the surgery who can talk to newly diagnosed and those people who are going to have that surgery to help them along the way. And we talk about living with your new normal. So the reason why the surgery has become the standard of care is because it does work. And it allows people who have higher grade disease to live longer and to, you know, to basically survive bladder cancer. But yes, it comes at a pretty high cost. So we'd love to be able, our, our goal is to find better treatments to allow people not to have, their, have to have their bladders removed and to be able to live longer. Part of treatment, and, and this is often forgotten, is the option to, to look at, at clinical trials. And if you look at clinical trials, there are, uh, I think, clinical, uh, clinicaltrial.gov is, is a resource uh, for, for clinical trials. But often for somebody who's not schooled in, in medicine, it might be very difficult to, to navigate some of that information. First of all, would it be wise to ask a doctor about clinical trials? And, and how does Beacon maybe help patients to navigate the enormous amount of, of, of clinical trials that are out there? Yes, it's a really important point. I mean, we all need clinical trials because that's the only way we're going to get new and better treatments. I, too, have been stymied by trying to find clinical trials on the NCI website. I think it's great, but I think for people who aren't schooled or educated in it, as you said, Peter, it's very difficult to navigate. So, Beacon, we have our own clinical trials dashboard that's on our website at www.bcan.org that is much more patient-friendly, patient-centered, where people who are interested can go in and answer a few, you know, depending on, again, what stage their bladder cancer is and what kind of trial they might be looking for, they can find those trials that are ongoing that are in maybe in their geographic area or if they're willing to travel where they can go through, go to, how they can find additional information, who they need to contact about it. Because, yes, I think exploring clinical trials should always be an option for patients. For some patients, it's more important than others. Clinical trials are often available for people who have exhausted all the other approved therapies. But also in certain cases, it's important because it can give you an option. For example, in the bladder cancer space, if you really do not want to have your bladder removed, there are clinical trials of drugs and drugs combinations that you can try to see if that will arrest the growth of your cancer and and enable you to continue with your biological bladder. So yes, it's very important and I encourage all patients to 
take a look at, at the Beacon website, at our clinical trials dashboard, and to arm yourself because oftentimes doctors don't have time to talk to patients about clinical trials. It's really unfortunate, but it's just an aspect of our medical system, and doctors give great clinical care, but oftentimes clinical trials will come as an afterthought. Um, so I think, again, and this goes to you know one of Beacon's important principles is making sure that the patients are armed with the information that they need so that they can ask the questions that they need. It's important for people to realize, I think, that a clinical trial does not mean that you are being treated with um, in one side um, or that you are not being treated or receive a sugar pill. Both treatment options, whether it's the clinical trial part or the other part of it, it's always the minimum is always the standard of care, right? Well, absolutely. And what's a real important point to add to that, Peter, not only is the minimum is the standard of care, but oftentimes in a clinical trial, you're even going to get better care because there are more, there is more that needs to be studied, more that you, you might be watched even more carefully under a clinical trial than you would just on any other kind of treatment. And actually, Beacon, we've done it. We did a wonderful conversation. I had a conversation with two experts on clinical trials. So there's a video on our website answering these very kinds of basic questions as to what you can expect on a clinical trial and dispelling some of the myths that on a clinical trial, you either will get less care or that you will be some kind of guinea pig. Clinical trials by design um, are focused on the safety of the patient. One of the other issues that comes to mind when we look at cancer, maybe bladder cancer in, in specifics, is that the issue of what we call disparities, uh, disparities in care that may be involved uh, racial or uh, gender, but also socioeconomic uh, disparities, and especially if people live in rural areas, this may be very hard to deal with. Looking at these problems, what is the impact of care was you, uh, Diane, and, and your organization noticed in, in, in seeing those disparities? So that, that we know and there have been studies done that patients who have access to comprehensive cancer centers or large urology practices who see and treat a lot of bladder cancer on a regular basis, those patients get better care. But unfortunately, everyone doesn't have access to those facilities. One of the things that Beacon is focused on with our medical community is, is supporting research that looks at such disparities on this access to care and those health disparities where it might exist and what we can do as a community to help bridge that gap. And one of the things, of course, Beacon is always dedicated to is just providing information to patients, both through our website as well as through written resources that we're happy to send to you through the mail. We also have a call-in line where we can answer any questions that the volunteer staffed. Uh, we just want to make sure that wherever people are in this country, that they never feel that they're alone and that we can help them as they go through this bladder cancer journey. I think that's, in, that's very important that people are going to always find a resource. Let's take a short break. After the break, we're back with our interview with Diane Zipersky-Kwalle. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brave.
Did you know that generic drugs are just as safe and effective as brand name drugs? Generics might look different, but they work the same way. And they can even save you money. Don't believe me? Ask your doctor or pharmacist. Or visit FDA.gov slash generic drugs. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. And welcome back. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Onkocin Brief. If you're just joining us, in today's episode of the Onkocin Brief, I'm talking about Diane Sapersky-Qualley, the co-founder and director of the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, Beacon. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Onkocin Brief. Now, if you look at that, I mean, what you do is not just educating the patient or the physician on one side, but also the family members, the children, the spouse, friends of, 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 of somebody who, who is being diagnosed with bladder cancer. And we often forget the important role of family members and, fa- and friends. Tell me a little bit about the importance there. Well, and I can certainly speak to that just from my own personal experience. It was my husband who mm-hmm. was the bladder cancer patient. But as I often said and continue to say, I think that for caregivers, we experience the cancer just the same way as our loved ones do, except that we don't have some of the physical impact. But certainly the emotional impact and the stress and the concern is just as significant and as much to bear on the family members and caregivers as it is on the patient, himself or herself. So I think it's really important that family members, caregivers get support for themselves as well and recognize the stressfulness of their own situation. Oftentimes, it's the the caregivers, the family members who are the source of information. I know that was certainly most of the case with me and my late husband. I I did all the research Mm -hmm. and I found all the information and he was very much engaged in the conversations with his doctor and we very much as a unit would decide about when we had options, what those treatment options would be. I think that's why it's very helpful to have somebody to help you do that. But the burden is on, is on the whole family or it's on the whole unit, whether that unit be a family or a group of friends. And I just think it's very important to people rec- to recognize the support that they need and to find that support and to be able to express their needs maybe to their... The caregivers of the caregivers, everybody needs help. And I think we need to be able to help ourselves to be able to help those that we love. So Beacon also provides, recognizes this, and we have uh, resources on our website as well for the caregivers because it's such an important part of helping the patient and just improving the lives of everyone who is impacted by the disease. I think that is uh, very strong advice to uh, not let it go, but I mean, basically to make sure that um, as a family member or a friend of somebody with uh, cancer, bladder cancer in this case, that you get the resources, that you get the information. And if you feel uh, bad about it, that you actually get the, the help that you need, because otherwise you can't be strong for the patients that you're dealing with. That's that's underlying um, advice that's, that I hear from you. Exactly, exactly. One of the things that people often forget, and it is also not addressed that often, 
is about nutrition. And there, there is a lot of information about how nutrition may help, proper nutrition may help maybe prevent certain forms of, of cancer. Um, but the greater part is if you've been, if after you've been diagnosed with bladder cancer, uh, nutrition may also be part of the healing process. Tell me a little bit about that. What, what are some of the things that people should know about that? Absolutely. And nutrition is something that Beacon has recently focused on. And in fact, on our website at www.bcan.org, we have two videos that we made just uh, several months ago with experts to talk about nutrition and bladder cancer. First, in the first instance, what do you need to know if you've been diagnosed with bladder cancer and in terms of nutrition? And in that case, Peter, it's, it's the, the most general and advice I can give is to have a healthy diet, to eat what we would call whole foods, to eat natural foods, to make sure you have a balanced diet with lots of vegetables and fruits and whole grains, and to certainly stay away from the processed foods and the fast foods to the extent you can. And actually, on in that video, we talk about easy ways to eat healthy. I know sometimes it sounds a little bit overwhelming for people, especially people who don't like to cook. Um, but today there are lots of, of stores that, that offer healthy foods that you can create your own plate that it's already prepared. So that's something we really encourage people to focus on because also as a cancer patient, diet is one thing that you can control and you can have power over. And then we also on our website and through this, our second video, have specific recommendations for people who might be undergoing surgery for the removal of their bladder because there are certain things that you can do to make sure you are in really as strong a shape as possible before the surgery so that the recovery becomes a little easier. And certainly with this surgery, there might be issues that come. And so, again, if you can look on our website, we will have tips as to things that you want to be sure to add to your diet. Um, and, and it's really more making sure of things that you add to your diet is, as opposed to staying away from certain items. Um, and one thing I can always say to people for everything, not just for bladder cancer, hydration, hydration, hydration. And if you don't like drinking lots of water, there are also lots of other things that you can add that green tea, other kinds of herbal teas that are really good because just adequate hydration is, is really important in so many different ways. I can attest that, especially if you live in, uh, in the southern states like Arizona um, or New Mexico. <laughs> yes. it, it's one of the key elements that uh, people always should keep in mind. But I guess the rest of the world is. Now, when you talk about hydration, uh, you're not talking about uh, sodas or uh, sugary drinks, but actually when you talk about green no. tea, you talk about freshly brewed green tea and things like that, right? Yes. Talking about green tea, there's some wonderful smoothies that you can make. And again, we have some recipes on our website for that. There's some wonderful smoothies you can make with fruit and with milk and yogurt and those kinds of things. And there's just a, a lot of other ways to get the fluid intake that you need other than sodas and sugary drinks. We are at the end of the program. But before we go, I really would like to ask you one final question. If uh, people hearing uh, about Beacon, about bladder cancer, uh, and they would like to get involved uh, with your organization, uh, where should they turn? What should they do? Well, that would 
be wonderful, and we invite everyone to reach out to us. Um, you can send us an email at info at bcan.org or go to our website, which is www.bcan.org, or give us a call at 888-901-2226. We have activities all around the country in May, which is Bladder Cancer Awareness Month. We have walks that go around, go occur all in communities all around the United States, and we certainly welcome uh, as many people as possible to get involved with our family. And that, that I think is a good uh, thing to do. Thank you very much uh, for uh, a wonderful interview. We'll hope we meet again. For more information about the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network or Beacon, please visit the website of the organization at www.bcan.org. For us here at the Oncogene Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners, sponsors and advertisers, for your ongoing support. Your support for this program helps us to create this interview and help us to talk to experts involved in the development of novel diagnostics and new cancer treatments. Your support makes it possible to distribute this program via iHeartRadio, in addition to PRX Public Radio Exchange, and in the United Kingdom and mainland Europe via UK Health Radio. You can also download our program via iTunes or listen to us via streaming media. In Arizona, you can listen to the Ongazine Brief via Independent Talk 1100 KFNX, one of the top 10 radio stations in Arizona, reaching almost 5 million people throughout the state. For more information about that, check out our online journal, Oncozine, at www.oncozine.com. That's O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E dot com. You can also find Oncozine at Facebook or Twitter. If you like the Oncozine Brief and want to help to make this program possible, visit our online Oncozine and click on the link, The Oncozine Brief. Here you can find out more information on how you can support or sponsor this program. If you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER, C-A-N-C-E-R, to 66866, and we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes information about cancer and overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Thank you all, and thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. The Oncazine Brief is produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hofflin, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncazine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about underwriting and sponsoring options, contact Sean Mayer in California at 949 923 1660, or visit our website at oncozine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. 
If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.